Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mack Weldon. With a smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience, Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard too. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, they're shipped right to your door. How about that for a bonus? If you don't like the first pair, you keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first purchase using promo code WATCH. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Rudy's Barbershop. With their 29 shops across the country, Rudy's is the original modern barbershop. Now, they're bringing their 25 years of experience to a line of hair and body products that smell great and work effortlessly. I have been a longtime Rudy's customer, and I am now just swimming in these products. You smell great. All of Rudy's products, including shampoo, conditioner, body wash, and more, are made in the USA. They are never tested on animals and use only the best ingredients available. To learn more, visit rudysbarbershop.com. That's R-U-D-Y-S barbershop.com. And enter the offer code WATCH to receive 25% off your first order from Rudy's website. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan and I am an editor at TheRigger.com. And joining me in the studio, he just got fired by Kathleen Kennedy. It's Andy Greenwald. Badge of honor. Yeah, you are the last Jedi, Mike, dude. Hollywood badge of honor. Chris, this is exciting. Big show today. We're going to talk about Twin Peaks. Yep. We're going to talk about Narcos. Yep. I've got an interview with Lizzie Moss. Yeah. Now, for the record, I checked. I can call her Lizzie Moss now. Second time talking to her, <laughs> said, it's Lizzie on the phone. I was like, okay, Lizzie, we're clearly best friends. That's dope. I can't wait to hear this interview, Andy. Uh, we, a little bit behind the scenes here. We actually recorded a big bit yesterday well, here, here's for the this, podcast. Look, here's the thing, Chris. Current events just bit us in the ass. Look, yes. we thought we would get ahead of things, yeah. and we recorded Thursday's podcast on Tuesday, like a couple of chumps. Like a p- couple of pros. Like a couple of pros. Tomato, tomato. And in this first segment that you are not hearing, we obviously teased Narcos Talk, Twin Peaks Talk, interview with Elizabeth Moss about Top of the Lake China we, Girl. We d- self-dapped for our interviews with Aya Cash and George Pelicados. Which are listenable now <laughs> yeah. via your podcasting devices. When I, We did those. They were up when I was on vacation. I also shared a little bit of a funny story about a just a brain bomb I had regarding the origins of U2's Octung Baby while on vacation. Uh-huh. We're not going to run that um, for, for, for legal reasons. But <laughs> Do you understand that what we're doing sort of negates the need for you to come back in and re-record this I'm part? I'm just saying... <laughs> if we just, Zach a, was like, it's a little bit of a long pot. If we just do two times... Listen. Fine. I'm just saying... <laughs> There's a there's a fun callback to it later in today's pod. I, if you if you hear me screaming in an Irish accent, yeah, we do that. That's because we were making a bunch of Bono jokes earlier. So that's we we just unlocked it a little. We bit. are gonna. I'll explain my octung baby theory in due time. It's gonna be maybe a watch after dark pod. Good, that's good. Like um, way dark. The reason dark why Andy net. had to come back in on Wednesday though is because Colin Trevorrow got. Left. <laughs> he got f- he left. left. Mutual decision. He left. Creative differences, whatever you want to call it. He left uh, Star Wars Episode Nine. We are like trauma surgeons. We got beeped and we had to come into the ER or the OR. Both. Yes. The emergency <laughs> OR to chop up this the, dead body. Welcome to the emergency Hollywood ER OR. Mm. Doctors Chris and Andy are here. 
We're just trying to find out how much we have to cut to save yeah. the patient. Nurse, take, please. Hand it's me my take. second time this year that a director or directors have been let go from a Star Wars film. Third time overall since the new regime. And you could argue that the there was a fourth case with Gareth Edwards where he did not quite finish mm-hmm. the film that he started making. With Tony Goer reportedly coming in to shoot the end or interiors for Rogue One. So... Uh, First of all, obviously, it's always bad when somebody loses a job. So sorry, Colin. Like, I'm sure you're going to be fine yeah, um, in the Jurassic worried. World. Uh, this is really interesting. Why not just hire the safe pair of hands in the first place? Why always say, like, mm. we're going to get an untested young director? Mm-mm-mm. No? I'm pushing back. You don't even like the premise. I reject it. Okay. Listen, skilled trauma surgeons make split-second decisions. Sure. And my decision right now is... No. Okay. I push back on that So you don't like this narrative. Go for it. Do you know who the safe, stable, boring pair of hands is? Colin Trevorrow. Colin Trevorrow is the equivalent of going to Wawa and getting a turkey sandwich on white bread with a little squeeze of French's. There is nothing interesting about hiring Colin Trevorrow to direct your movie. I Nothing. He was such a safe choice that I remember people being – I mean, let me rephrase that – I remember being <laughs> don't, yeah, don't blame other very disappointed because the hiring of Ryan Johnson to do episode eight yes. felt exciting. Yeah. Because, and we, and we have discussed this before, he is maybe not a unique case, but one of very few people who have um, artistic, auteurist chops, but have enough experience in big budget coal mines to deliver the product. And that, from everything everyone has heard, that has been the result, right? The, the buzz, such as it is, about... The Last Jedi is uniformly positive. Um, Colin Trevorrow was the easiest pick possible. This is a guy who made Safety Not Guaranteed a fine indie movie. Mm -hmm. Wildly overrated, but fine indie movie. Starring two friends of the pod, Jake Johnson and Mark Duplass. Jumped from that straight to Jurassic World. Which was an I I did I know that you don't like it. I think <laughs> so you saw bad. it in the back of a seat somewhere. I like I thought it was fine. A back of a seat somewhere. I saw it on Delta One Entertainment System. Sure, sponsors of the watch. Right, right. That said, look the the you're leaving out a very important part here. The, so he the, made the, the Book of Henry. Yes, he made a blockbuster film. I don't think that's the issue here. I, well, okay. Let's but, just but, but, but let's uh, just let's before, just lay out the table before for we lay it out. To choose me, which dish to, to choose. Let here. me just say this. Yeah. Let me just interrupt the judging chopped judges and just say this is a complicated one to parse based on the no evidence that we have in front of, of us. Of course, Because yeah. he is the safe choice who is apparently let go for want pushing back on the script. So he was behaving as if he was an auteur, but I believed he was, he was from the put, beginning. So that's the rumor. The rumor is that there were some script issues. I mean, there are always script well, issues. Well, initially it had been reported like years ago, and I think that this had been dispelled by Ryan Johnson himself, is that Ryan was going to direct I – don't, I don't know him like the way you know Lizzie Moss, but Ryan was going to – I called him Rai Rai. He was going to direct episode eight and write at least a treatment for episode nine. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, so there's some narrative of continuity mm-hmm. you don't have to be like well how are we going to retcon in this maybe mm-hmm. and then uh obviously colin trevorrow came on i believe his co-screenwriter is called named Derek conley his, his usual collaborator yeah. and i i haven't heard yet about these these rumors about um pushing back on the script stuff um the sort of conventional wisdom was that the book of henry which made less than five million dollars and and is Considered to be one of the worst films of recent times. Yes, was just such a blemish, you know, that it made maybe the Disney brass, Kathleen Kennedy, Lucasfilm brass, take stock of what was happening. Now, uh, the Lord and Miller were fired off of 
Han Solo in mid-production and yes. have since been replaced by Ron Howard, who has commenced seemingly extensive reshoots because he like pretty much edited Michael K. Williams out of Han Solo and yep. has now added Paul Bettany to it because Michael K. Williams wasn't available right. to come back for reshoots. By the way, trying to say that Michael Hollywood's K. worst nightmare writ large for in terms of a narrative is let's remove Michael K. Williams and replace him <laughs> with a man literally white enough to be a ghost. <laughs> Like, I'm not sure Paul Bettany is not completely transparent. Right. Uh, with this situation, obviously, they just got kind of got ahead of it. And I think that uh, at the end, we can end it right here. The ultimately lesson here is that this is just this is the new normal. You know, if, if these these properties cost so much money, they are so important to these companies that they are just going to make the decision, the hardest decision usually that you would have to make. It's really, really difficult to part ways with the director of a movie. That person no, is nominally in charge. Not anymore. No, because, I know. That's yeah, what I'm saying. I mean, it's the new normal. It's because, happening all the time. You know, as we know, Marvel, the, the big engines, Marvel, DC, and Lucasfilm have their slates planned decade in advance. Mm-hmm. They have multiple writer teams working on treatments for each potential movie, which they will then basically do a bake-off and say, I like the first act from this guy. Why don't you write the second act? Nah, I'm going to switch to the third act. The movies are going to happen regardless. It is a it is an assembly line. Whoever directs them, whoever stars in them, irrelevant. The movies will come out to meet shareholders' bottom line. It is franchise management is the job of a director. You, your stewardship. You're lucky if you get to scribble in the margins, or you've chosen the margins, like James Gunn, who's done a good job for Marvel with Guardians of the Galaxy. It it's kind of a bummer, like you said, when someone loses their job. I did not want to see another Colin Trevorrow film, so I, I feel like this is in some level good news, but. The real question is, and I definitely just reject out of hand people who are like, they'll never take chances. They fired Colin Trevorrow. <laughs> I'm like, really? I think that there's a degree in which these these productions are like political campaigns, and people are trying to win the day, and they try to generate interest in these projects by rumor mill stuff and also the hiring of people. They're not necessarily making these decisions based on like, oh, we have a guaranteed track record here of people who have made seven, eight movies, and they know how to do this. So I think that while there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for the idea that maybe none of this matters, Star Wars is Star Wars. You could have you or I direct one of these movies and essentially they would make sure it came out on the other side okay. At the end of the day, the thing that's different now than, say, like when Jedi was being made or when the prequels were being made is that there's just more of an industry around the speculation of like who's going to get cast in this mm-hmm. role, who's going to – what's the behind-the-scenes rumors for this role. I find it pretty telling that like almost every one of these movies with the exception of episode eight has had a huge behind-the-scenes – expose about it you know mm-hmm. and, and that has become public right it, it's weird to me because you're playing with house money you're making star wars everyone's going to see star wars everyone around the world is going to see star wars it almost doesn't matter which i realize raises the stakes internally because you don't want to be the one to s- screw up the cycle right but it's star wars this is the trilogy they already have the story they can keep rewriting it forever but they've got it and it's a question of who's going to land the plane before we move on to our, all our other conversations who you got who would you like to see i think it's gonna be ryan johnson that makes the most sense. He's already said he would do another Star Wars movie in a heartbeat, that he would love to stay in this world. Yeah. Nothing has, so far, nothing bad has been said about episode eight. Right. He's like, I know where the sets are. I know how to do all this stuff. Like, the I'm actors in, obviously in have a familiarity with him. I just, I don't understand why you would go do a talent search for this when this guy could probably b- Turn this, turn the keys over right now to him. And he's he's still there. Yeah. He's still posting right now. Yeah. The the only thing I would say, and I say this based on not necessarily believing he's the right person for Star Wars or I want him to be doing Star Wars, but Ryan Coogler is in a very unique position. I mean, obviously Black Panther hasn't come out yet, 
But the, what it appears he's done with Black Panther is basically walked into a situation where the giant conglomerate needed him more than he needed the giant conglomerate. And because of that, he was able to, it appears he was able to extract some creative freedom for his project right. that was not granted to other filmmakers. So the idea of him being able to do that makes him makes him kind of unique. It makes him the last airbender here. I don't actually know what that means. It just sounds appropriate. So that alone, you find, you have to find someone who can do it and can actually take advantage of the opportunity in a way that these other people have not been allowed to. That said, it should be Ryan Johnson. You have the guy in house and he's good, apparently. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Just don't do something where you're like, you're going to hire Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and then six months later be like, wait, they wanted to make fart jokes? Like, Finally, though, <laughs> this means one thing that we can all agree on is a good thing, which is another book of Henry. <laughs> I'm psyched. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Peaks. I'm very emotional, Chris. Something that took 25 years to make and mm-hmm. 18 hours to gestate as mm. we arrived at the Twin Peaks finale. We get there, and because we need, because we ever, especially for something as in some ways indecipherable as the finale of, of Twin Peaks, you didn't, you kind of demand, like, you know, explain this to me. Give me your, mm-hmm. what do you take? What do you think? And then, I felt like everybody was like, well, this is what I think now, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there, so there was a lot of like, well, it's like Allison wrote really well about like this idea of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam Neiman wrote on The Ringer about the uh, the house. I loved it. You know, I love that piece. Um, and I thought Matt Zollersites did a really nice job, not only doing an incredible breakdown, frame by frame breakdowns of, of a couple of the scenes to kind of talk about uh, Lynch's style. But had a really good line in there about the idea of breaking away from some of the binaries that mm-hmm. we have when we talk about television. Yes. Now, I will say this, not to be trolly and not – that is a, a allowance that not many other filmmakers, television shows, anybody gets where you get to you get to the end and the response is – well, we can't judge this by any known criteria that we usually apply to television. I know that that is what you were probably going to say, but I have sympathy for people, including myself. Aww. Is that self-sympathy? Self-care. Empathy? Self-care. It's important in these trying like, times. This was at times a little bit of a drag to watch over the course of the season, not mm-hmm. not this last episode. And that, um, you know, it was... It was hard to understand, and I and I I say that as someone who prides himself on on being able to understand a lot of stuff. Uh, that being said, Matt, and I'm sure you will tell me that like part part of this is that you're not supposed to quote unquote understand it in the traditional sense of this narrative made this much sense. So yeah, I appreciate it. I think Matt cites in his long piece, which I also recommend, ended by by talking about the poet John Ashbery, yeah. who, who who just passed away, and and the idea being. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that uh, difficult times calls for difficult art. Incoherent times may call for an incoherent art, mm-hmm. which was nicely phrased and nicely put. Um, I, my my feeling is obviously um, layered. I I loved this. I loved this completely with every part of my being. I'm deeply, deeply moved that I even got this. I mean, I, I cannot overstate that falling in love with Twin Peaks 27 years ago taught me to care about things, mm-hmm. taught me to care about art, taught me to b- believe in the possibility of television, television storytelling, I filmmaking. I feel that way about Octung Baby. So, yeah. That's <laughs> right. Until I just shattered your dreams. Uh, so to get anything this many years later is a, is a gift. And so I, I really, it was a nice feeling because of that to spend these last 15, 16, 16 weeks, I guess, just grateful mm-hmm. and not engaging in... Um, is it good? Instant reactions. Is it good? Is, is it, it bad? Breaking landing? it down. Yeah. Just kind of being present in it. 
And there's a video clip that's circulating of David Lynch at Cannes where he premiered the first two hours where he says stuff that I kind of – all filmmakers say this where he's like, it's not a TV show. It's an 18-hour movie. But he also says, you know, like make, get a big screen, put on headphones – get as close to the screen as you can. And, he, and that's fine. I don't necessarily vouch for it because I don't want to get also sued by people whose eyes burn out. Um, you should be safe with your TV viewing. But he, what he says at the end is, and you just may enter another world. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and that is what this show and this whole universe and his filmmaking does for me. So obviously I'm, I'm on board. But to have experienced this, I'm just floored by the audacity of this project. I think this was artistic beyond measure, emotional beyond measure, creative, risk-taking, challenging beyond measure in in a way that just is – people were questioning why – when I was tweeting my praise, I used the word joyful because this was joyful to me to watch this. Obviously, there were dark things in it. But to see risks being taken, to see dream logic being interpreted on the screen for others without filter. You know, this is something that Lynch talks about in his – interviews and also in his like meditation practice that the the reason he's so into transcendental meditation is because it removes the filters so things emerge from his subconscious and sure. he can just translate them sure and i i'm i know that just because i'm a fan i'm not the one who who only one who says, feels this that when you watch twin peaks or lynch's filmmaking or specifically moments in the return you, you the hairs on the back of your neck stand up there are things that are so unsettling and intimate because they could only exist in your subconscious so i want to push you a little bit cuz i think that like that is uh, that's that's obviously like the sort of broad strokes but like yeah. can we talk but, a little bit about the let, final let's talk episode? about the finale yeah so, cuz i want so to talk it? a little bit about like cuz i think one of the things that i'm sure some people were like what do you mean by joy i would i would just say that i found the the finale to be quite disturbing you very know, disturbing. You, you know what I mean? And, and and in some ways, I I could really care less about like resolution for characters. And when it comes to this, that is one thing that this show successfully kind of like just I shook off all the like what like what, how could you do that to this person? You know, kind of well, stuff. A, a lot of that is actually really challenging in a wonderful way. Our nostalgia and our desire to go back to fictional worlds because to go back means to open them up again and be alive instead of trapping characters in amber in moments where they were relatively safe they were not dead they were not 25 years older you know and instead we open it back up well more life will have to happen to them and so to see on one of the themes of the show and we talked about it other times we talked about it was history repeating itself people trapped in cycles the new generation of kids moody soap opera teens doing the same nonsense the adults doing the same nonsense that was shelly the character of shelly's arc basically was to you know still be doing the same things that she was doing before in a way that felt more sad because her daughter was also trapped in that yeah. cycle but specifically to the there were two hours that they put together for the finale i don't know if they intended that but that was how it was aired they put two at the beginning too the first hour of sunday night was you know, in, truly incredible in a lot of ways. It was, it remi- here's something that I was thinking when I was watching it, was how Breaking Bad brilliantly ended twice. Emily Nussbaum wrote about this really well, that if you watch Breaking Bad a certain way, Granite State, the episode where Walt is in isolation, mm-hmm. in exile, with nothing but a barrel of money, and he has to pay someone to keep him company, that's the end of the show. That is a sad um, life-leaching-away ending that felt totally appropriate to the way some people watched it. If you didn't agree with that, there was the finale. Finale. <laughs> yeah. Where he, every, his plan worked, and everything worked in a way. I mean, he, I don't, you know, we don't need to spoil specifics, but he, had, he got revenge in a lot of ways. Um, that's how I felt about these two episodes. The first hour resolved really the story of, of this return season, 
it killed the doppelganger. Um, the evil Bob was punched to death by a British guy wearing a latex glove, which is I love saying this stuff out loud. Um, and then in the end, which was truly transcendental, uh, he Dale Cooper slipped the bonds of time and entered the story. Uh, the night Laura Palmer died, a scene from Firewalk with Me was was shown in black and white this time. A scene that it has existed for 25 years where Laura sees something in the woods, f- screams, freaks out. We were, it was revealed in this scene that that was Dale Cooper who has gone back to that time and is now going to save her. Mm-hmm. And we get these incredible images, really moving images of the, the pilot, of Joan Chen, of, of uh, Jack Nance who passed away, like many of the people involved in this project, going to go fishing but there's no body and he goes fishing. And it's like so he and I I remember thinking this is the most audacious thing I've ever seen. The crime that's being it's solved its is erasing self. itself, yeah, right? And that's the narrative. Yeah. The second hour undid all of that in a really harrowing, harrowing way. And what it revealed to me was that Twin Peaks, the story of Twin Peaks, in a lot of ways, is a tragedy. It is about the tragic the tragedy of an FBI agent becoming consumed with one case and being dogged, things we champion Dale Cooper for. But not only just being dogged about the one case, thinking he can beat evil and not just solve a case, but erase evil, undo murder. You know, that's not possible. That's kind of a trite observation, you know, but that to to see his failings made him a tragic figure in my eyes. And it, it made me think that FBI agents, yes, and also TV fans who wanted resolution, who wanted everyone to be happy, one of the most beautiful things about Twin Peaks occurs like eight minutes into the pilot from 1990 when there's a lot of funny stuff and there's a lot of business and Pete Martell goes fishing and then Sarah Palmer gets the news that her daughter is dead yeah. and Grace Zabriskie screams in a way that no one has ever screamed on television. And I feel like that scream is the black hole underneath all of Twin Peaks that the show dwarf dances around. It's horror, like it dives down her throat there. But yeah. that exists. Yeah, yeah. Horror exists at the root of all of this in, in life. And the fact that the show went back to the home went back to you know, this, this, this wound that cannot be fixed. It cannot be glibly taken away, and a, a, a superheroic FBI agent cannot talk to a tea kettle and fix it, much like we can't have resolution that we want in, in art or in life. I mean, that was, that was what it was saying to me. And yet it also gave us this resolution with Dougie where that's kind of the happy ending for Cooper fans want it, right? I mean, what what is a happy ending for this fictional character yeah, of Dale Cooper? I think that and and the, the the juxtaposition of the finality of the red door versus these fluid red curtains really spoke to me. Interesting. What did you think of the Richard and Linda stuff between Dern and Cooper? I mean, Lynch has been long been fascinated by people becoming other people. It's Lost Highway, it's Mulholland Drive, um, and here it was again. Now they become Richard and Linda when they drive 430 miles. All of the stuff was foreshadowed in the very first scene of this series when the giant, now known as the fireman, says those things. Remember mm-hmm. Richard and Linda, two birds with one stone, 430. Um, I, I liked the idea of no matter who these people are, they, they can't es- escape themselves. Sure. You know, that, that's, that's what it was for me. Um, the, there was something so – I mean, obviously, it was – first of all, just on filmmaking, it was deeply disturbing, right? Yeah. The, the, scene, the, the, the sex scene. The, the hands on the, the face. The hands on yeah. the face, the annihilation of him, the way he, they woke up in a different room as a different person. That when – I believe – I might be wrong about this, but I believe when he goes to the, di- the Judy Diner and he's acting like the doppelganger, when they offer him coffee, I believe the cup stays empty. I don't – I'd love someone to go back. I don't think they pour any coffee in that, in that cup. He never says his name. He just says he's with the FBI. 
you know, it, it is another universe, another dimension. Yeah. And this idea that in this other dimension, he's still trying to fix this thing that cannot be fixed is deeply unsettling. Yeah. But that's that's the point. You know, I think Twin Peaks and David Lynch's David Lynch's relationship to television has always been about rejecting easy convention. And this series itself was about that, too. So it, it worked for me artistically. It worked for me narratively. But you can do this meta stuff, too. Sure. And talk about what it's saying about nostalgia, about art, about identity, about purpose, about how we're all just trying to solve one case. Um, and, you know, there's been a, obviously, and you alluded to this, there's been a ton of great writing. Uh, there's a blog post I'll link to someone wrote on Lost in Movies talking about how, you know, Twin Peaks often gets blamed for being the original Dead Girl show. Mm-hmm. Once again, this this would-be hero, male hero, is trying to save this this woman, you know, and sort of white knight her back into existence. And it just ends in screams again and again and again, making her suffer again and again and again, making us fetishize her death in a way again and again and again. It's... Only David Lynch can do this and give us the Michael Sarah scene, you know, and give us these moments of just camp and hilarity. And I mean, Belushi, Jim, Jim Belushi was in that final scene with Nepper, the Mitchum brothers, suddenly just iconic characters watching this the way a TV fan might watch it being like, that's one for the grandkids. I mean, huh? Yeah. But I, I, I love it. Unlike, I love it more than, than anything. It, it, it's what I think... Um, you know, this exists, but I think that it will filter down and it, it will filter down into more conventional ways. It's there in the leftovers. It's there in in some ways. I, I feel it in top of the lake just genetically because of the way it resists certain kinds of storytelling convention. It's that alone is pretty exciting to me. Yeah, I think if anything I'll take from it, it's that uh, as more and more filmmakers and more and more people produce more and more television, I will be really interested to see how the conventions of narrative storytelling get challenged on on like a week-to-week, episode-to-episode, show-to-show basis. Mm-hmm. I saw this movie um, over the weekend called Good Time. Oh, I, I want to see it. Talking to Fantasy a little bit about it. There's a point in the middle of the movie. It's it's like a very, it's very good. I, 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 really, I really recommend it. Uh, it's a, basically a, like a really gritty Sidney Lumet crime film set in New York. Pattinson, Robert Pattinson gives a great performance. And midway through the movie, it it doesn't take like a, it's not a twist, as much as like the movie goes where it wants to go, mm-hmm. and it's a feeling that I don't get very often. I think if you see a lot of stuff, you just start to be able to predict certain things. Mm-hmm. And it's there is a there is a moment in good time where it like comes to life, and you're just like, oh my god, like this movie could go any direction mm-hmm. right now. And that was part of the joy or the part of the enjoyment, and and sometimes frankly confounding and sometimes frustrating about watching Twin Peaks over the last couple of months was that feeling of anything could happen at any given moment. And I would love to see in three or four years when we're talking, like, what have some people who are going to make television in the coming years taken from Twin Peaks and been like, I don't have to do this this way or, you know, like, and, you know, not everyone, frankly, no one is going to get the kind of creative freedom that Lynch did, you know, from David Nevins. But, you know, I think some of this stuff can filter down. I I think the central... Um, tension of of the next few years of television. It's not um, difficult men. It's not. Um, I mean, it is streaming versus network. But really, to me, it is giving people what makes them feel comfortable and safe, which is what television has always done, versus taking them on a journey where they don't know where they're going. And the best work often does a little bit of both. And even Twin Peaks: The Return did a little bit of both. But 
I the one thing I reject is this idea that this was a movie. This was a TV show, and I think the ending speaks to that too. Because one of the things about TV is that it just goes on and on and on. Um, and I think it was almost a tribute to that to end in such an uncomfortable place. Last note. No, I don't think there's going to be a season four. No one has said there will be. I wouldn't expect anyone he's to, 71. to, to make another one. He's 71. Many another. of the actors, so many passed away already. Um, many of them, you know, you don't know if they would be willing to come back or, or fit to come back, especially if he waits a lot of time. I, I, it's a mistake to, think, to look at the end of this as like a backdoor pilot or a cliffhanger. No. This is, this is a, a definitive statement, and it is harrowing, you know, in terms of what we thought of as a hero and what we thought of as success or yeah. resolution um but we have to sit with that and i think that's that's a challenge that i'm happy to undertake I, i'm so happy this happened yeah um i'll just talk briefly about narcos uh about what narcos i'm sorry what's it called narcos uh Thank you. the entire third season this weekend and in more than even the past seasons, you know, I've, we've joked, we joke, joke a lot about the name of the, the sh- we just like scream the name of the show. And uh, when it first came out, I think Andy and I were both like, this is just like a nice, like this is comfort TV to us. This like, is this Wikipedia, is, the TV show. Yeah. And, it, and that there is a degree of which like the, the straightforwardness of it is almost refreshing. And I, I think that that is uh, still the case It's just a super text. Not a lot of subtext. Mm-hmm. I was talking with Sean about that. He, there was this line, like, this idea that it was, like, it is what it says it is. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of Ewing theory going on in this uh, yeah. season. So no Wagner Mora playing Pablo Escobar and no Boyd Holbrook. Didn't know that. Much to my chagrin, playing DEA agent Steve Murphy. Steve Murphy. And Pedro Pascal, who's, you know, nominally the most famous person mm-hmm. in the show and is honestly, like, I very high approval rating on him from me. Like yeah. just in everything he's in Always good. and generally just seems like a very like enjoyable human being. Always happy to see him. Yeah. Uh, he is not as big of a force in this show, I would say, as you would think he is. And I wonder whether part of that is that he, in this season, plays the Pena character that he plays is actually an amalgam of other DEA agents and U.S. people who were working on the Cali cartel cases. Right. Pena himself did not work on the Cali cartel. Mm. So he has been sort of kept around as a kind of bridge mm-hmm. to uh, Michael Saul David, who's Chris Feistel character, is is a real person mm-hmm. um, and did work on bringing down the Cali cartel. The season actually hinges around uh, this character named Jorge Salcedo, who is uh, the chief or becomes the chief of the Cali cartel's internal security and then uh, – I mean, I guess spoiler, but it's not that much of a spoiler, turns into an, a confidential informant nice. for the DA. And it is essentially like half chase movie, half spy movie. Which So I I just have no complaints about that. Yes, like it is definitely like written largely in cliches <laughs> and uh, a lot of, um, you know, I put your, you got to give me your gun and your badge stuff. But I will say that... Um, more than almost any show, I I can I can't even think of another show that takes. I, I wrote about this on the Ringer today. That uses setting and place as um, as a character the way that Narcos does. I, I've always loved that about the show. It's on location in Colombia. It doesn't feel. You can start to sense when you watch a show like that's a set, or not even that's a set, but clearly there are seven sets that they have built mm-hmm. and all the scenes sort of run through them in a car wash mm-hmm. and then they have some exteriors like Narcos feels like 
it can go flying out the window and down the street and up the hill and down into the jungle and into a helicopter. And it it is literally searching around the next corner for action, for the chase, for the for the pursuit. And it is um, mesmerizing to watch. Some great performances. The guy who plays uh, Pacho, uh, or I think it's Armando Aman, is an Argentinian actor, and he's really good in this season. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, I I'm, I'll probably talk a little bit about that this a little bit later. But I really highly recommend watching it just because it is just excellent filmmaking, and and it's kind of like there's there's not a lot of like I know that it's not going to get a lot of like end of the year notice, but it does what it does exceptionally I, well. I, I love the phrase you coined in the piece that you wrote for The Ringer, pulp nonfiction. Yeah. I think that's that's a perfect description of it. Yeah. And I think that one of the benefits of everything getting renewed and having this glut of television is that things settle into what they are. Things are often received maybe out of whack with what they actually are, you know? Yes. And Narcos premiered during a period when, when Netflix was trying so abjectly to be a competitor to HBO that we treated everything that it did. And Narcos was originally, I believe, developed at HBO. Yeah, and it was like, Do, is Pablo like Don Draper somehow? You know what I mean? Right. Like, is his, when, in fact, what they were doing was, first of all, they were competing with everything in all entertainment, and they were not concerned about you know a prestige target. But it allows something like Narcos, you know, which is clearly, despite no evidence that they provide, one of their highest rated programs, this can run forever. Yeah. It provides a certain kind of entertainment. And it's and I agree with you that it, filmmaking alone, the location stuff alone, always makes it worthwhile. I'm gonna I am gonna watch some and of this. The, the season four uh looks like it will move to Mexico. Thanks. Uh, and there's there's rumors that it will the, the next sort of season, multi season arc is gonna begin to track El Chapo. So should be pretty interesting. Um that wraps us up, right? Do you wanna get one, one other bit in? of business? Remember the double down book club is alive and That's well. Right. Sorry. And we are reading one of our favorite books, yes. or rereading in our case, The Sweet Forever by George Pelicanos. It is relevant to your interests, if <laughs> yeah. you, I think, if you enjoy Narcos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're enjoying The Deuce, Pelicanos is a great new series on HBO. We'll talk more in depth about that. We talked to George, but I think maybe next Monday we'll devote to The Deuce. Um, yeah, we'll talk more about The Deuce. Um, we will, we, you got another couple weeks to read this book. I hope, I don't think people find it a hard book to read, but let's, we'll take a break and we'll come back with my interview with Elizabeth Moss. Well, yeah, let's just hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Delta Airlines. When you're trying to get from point A to point B, oftentimes all of your energy is spent on simply making it to your destination. Mm -hmm. That's why Delta offers every type of entertainment for every passenger free with Delta Studio. Chris, this is relevant to our podcast. Remember when I did airplane movies last year? Yeah. All on Delta. Powered by Delta Studio. Delta Studio grants you access to over 1,000 hours of entertainment, all from your seatback or your own device, 100% free. Choose from podcasts, games, television, and up to 300 movies. Even get access to HBO Showtime and 18 channels of live satellite TV on select flights. Or listen to your favorite artists with Delta Studio's expansive music library. Delta's also partnered with the likes of HGTV, Refinery29, Food Network, Hulu Originals, WMYC Studios, Curious World, Headspace, and Disney XD to offer even more great content. And it's all streamable from your laptop, your iPhone, iPad, or Android tablet device via the GoGo Entertainment app. Buckle up and relax. Delve deeper into another world as you soar above your own. With endless entertainment from Delta Studio, your journey is sure to fly by. Your boy, Young Platinum Medallion, agrees. (laughs) Okay, we're back, or I'm back. Um, Just wanted to set up a conversation I had with... 
one of the great actors of our time, I think, Elizabeth Moss. I had the great pleasure of talking to her a couple years ago coming off of Mad Men. And uh, it was terrific to get her on the phone today to talk about what is one of my favorite television shows of the year and certainly one of the best performances of the year. Her work in Sundance's Top of the Lake China Girl, directed by Jane Campion. The first episodes premiered last night on Sundance. You could probably get it on demand. But it was terrific to talk to Lizzie. Yes, she says I'm allowed to call her that. And so I will absolutely abuse that privilege about her work on the show, working with Gwendolyn Christie and uh, Nicole Kidman, her work on Handmaid's Tale and the preparation going into season two of The Handmaid's Tale, and a little preview of how nervous she is about actually winning an Emmy this month. Spoiler alert, I really feel like she's going to win an Emmy. She deserves it. Always a pleasure to talk to Lizzie. Boy, I get to say that. Here's my interview. Just going to get right into it, if you don't mind. Um, I have a very heavy question to hit you with right away. (laughs) Okay. I I just, no no pussyfooting around it. I just have to ask you, how has your summer been? (laughs) I just, I cannot believe it's so out of line. So out of line. My summer is going great. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Well, it's the reason I ask is, Last time we spoke a couple years ago uh, in New York City, very close to your home, you painted a very lovely and very normcore image of your daily life because we were near your neighborhood. You talked about you know, loving living in New York. And yet since then, I feel like you have never stopped working. And I don't know if you have time to still have that lovely life in New York and if that's by choice. <laughs> it was all a lie. It was all a lie, Andy. None of that's true. Um, that's a life I want to have. <laughs> I see. It's aspirational. Uh, you well, <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, I have been able to be in New York a little bit more, which has been nice uh, this year. Basically, I've been uh, pretty much all of 2017, uh, 2016, I was working um, and up until February of 2017. And then uh, I started promoting those projects that I went away and worked on. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I've spent a lot of time talking about myself, which is, you know... <laughs> debatably fun. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on the questions, I guess. Yes, exactly. If I get really a complex, interesting one, like, how's your summer going? Then I'm in heaven, obviously. Uh, (laughs) Okay, well, I I will rise to this challenge. Yeah, uh, I've been... Okay. I've been able to be in New York a little bit more, so that's been... That actually has been really nice. I've been riding my bike and um, going out to dinner with my mom and probably doing a lot of the stuff that I told you about last year. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm just glad to hear it. Um, so now now I can get into the harder Thank stuff. You. Um But it would not too hard. It, again, I'm just going to butter you up more because I'm so happy we're talking about uh, a new series of Top of the Lake. Um, the first one was my favorite show of 2013. Um, I've watched two episodes of the new series. Oh, thank you. I, I didn't want to get too ahead of viewers because we're going to put this up uh, just after the first parts have aired here. Um, but what I've seen is outstanding, um, just tremendous. And... You know, I, I, I have to say, I, I was a little trepidatious because I loved the finality of the first one. It was a singular statement, which I think is underrated in television. Uh, I was a little worried about everyone opening it back up again. I, I, was, I realize now that was silly of me, that you wouldn't, that you and, and, and Jane and the rest of the creative team would not have found a, a way back in that made sense. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the genesis of this? I believe there were past notes under hotel doors. I've read that. But, but beyond that, just finding a compelling reason to go back to this world. Yeah, um... We actually started talking about it back in Queenstown, New Zealand, while we were making season one. And it kind of came out of just being really happy working together and not wanting it to end. 
Um, and, and so we just sort of started, I remember it was me and Jane and Emil, um, one of our producers from Seesaw, and we just sort of almost started joking at, at a sushi restaurant about what it would be. And then at a certain point in the conversation, it kind of became, wait, are we, are we joking? Cause that's actually kind of an interesting idea. Uh, and I felt that actually there was so much left to explore from the end of season one. I felt like there were was so much there was so much that was open-ended um so i as a as a viewer as well kind of just wanted to know what happened to her uh and what happened to this little family that she had formed in new zealand so um it came out it came out of really like very selfish ideas of just being like i don't want to really i don't want to stop this i would like to continue playing this character and and jane saying this has been a really rewarding experience for me as well and i would like to continue it and and then it, the reason why it took so long because it was about four years in between, and two or three of those years, quite honestly, we were never quite sure if it was going to happen. Uh, and it was really only the last year that it became sort of clear that we were going to do it. Um, and that was because Jane and Jared, her co-writer, really wanted to make sure that we had a story to tell. We had all the same fears and trepidations, uh, you know, that you mentioned that. It, we did a we did a really good job with the first one, and was there a reason to tell another story? Uh, and and so that had to all kind of be figured out um, and explored, because there was nobody that wanted to um, not mess it up more than we did. You know? <laughs> Absolutely, and you you obviously have experience returning to a character after some time away. Although, as you said, this was this was quite a long hiatus. Um, I, I was curious about the specific experience yeah. of making the show because. Um, unlike, say, on Mad Men, where, you know, you went back to the same uh, studio, you know, in a city in the country where you live, though on the other side of it, um, to make this show, you fly to the other side of the world. Um, you adopt a different accent. Uh, I wonder, as a performer and as a person, is that particularly freeing, exhilarating? Is it scary? Is that a good kind of fear to go into with a pro- on a project like this? Yeah, that's definitely the last thing you said. It's a really good kind of fear. Um you know, there's something about being able to go so far away um, and the isolation that that gives you and the concentration that that gives you where you don't have people around that you know and you are in a completely foreign land where everybody sounds different and things are done differently. And uh, for me, it was nothing but helpful. And, as you know, as far as the accent goes, you know, I'm surrounded by the Australian accent. I'm surrounded by the culture. Um, it's so helpful for me. So it felt like I kind of, you know, I'm this American girl who born and raised in L.A. and lived in New York for 15 years. And I have no business in Australia uh, or New Zealand. And I feel really kind of one of the most fortunate parts of my job that I've gotten to live in these places for six months at a time, you know, and and really kind of become a local. And uh, I love that part of it, you know. So for me, it's it, that's all very exciting. It's not something scary. It's something that... Um, I, I really, truly love about my job, and, and it only helps me. I would imagine it also helps the performance because Robin herself is kind of an outsider. Certainly this season she's returning um, to Sydney for the first time after a prolonged absence, and she does not feel necessarily comfortable in any interaction, at least in the early part of the season. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's absolutely right. And the same went for New Zealand as well. She's sort of an outsider there. You know, she's born there, but she doesn't really have any kind of connection there anymore except for her mother. And then in the second season, yeah, she purposefully doesn't want any connection with anybody. She's really isolating herself. 
Um, and, you know, it's really about how you can isolate yourself in uh, a city. You know, living in New York, I'm really familiar with that. You know, you're constantly surrounded by people, but you can be absolutely alone if you want to be. And um, we really explored that um, with China Girl. And, uh, yeah, she's it, it definitely helped to be an outsider myself. <laughs> Although you, you also clearly were ordering flat whites before it became trendy in Brooklyn. So I feel like that was one benefit. I know. How about that? <laughs> I remember being in New Zealand and being like, what's a flat white? Because I had to order it in the scene. And it's like a legitimate drink over there. And then I came back and it was like two years later, all of a sudden they're selling flat white Starbucks. And I was like, uh-huh. I see how it is. See, Top of the Lake is <laughs> Top of the Lake is hugely influential. It's just not, you know, in subtle ways. Yes, exactly. In insidious ways. The, the, the first the first series was so remarkable because of the way I, I'm I'm actually struggling with the adjective. I was going to say unflinching. I was going to say honest, but those seem like um, you know sort of virtuous words. When I when I what I mean is that there's a what the show does is. Attra- it, it attacks every issue with a with a full 360 degree humanity. Um, there's there's humor when you least expect it. There's anguish and pain um, sometimes when you least expect it. The first season tackled um, childhood trauma or addressed it in a in in, in a number of ways that were extremely moving. Uh, this season, um, while those scars exist, is about motherhood um, in a way that truly knocked me flat and surprised me. Um, between Robin's relationship with the the child that she gave up for adoption to um, Nicole Kidman's character, who is the mother of that uh, adopted child. The idea of motherhood is often treated in a very facile way in our entertainment, almost because it's something, it can be so personal and raw for people that we run away from the harder parts of it. This is a show that runs right towards it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's all, that's beautifully put. Um, Really, thank you. And it was definitely something that was the most intriguing to me about doing this one was what is that relationship between a woman who has given up her child and never knew her and how does she establish that relationship and what kind of a mother is she and how does she find the the motherhood in herself and I and I really liked the idea of when she meets her daughter that she doesn't know her, that she's a stranger, and that she doesn't immediately feel like a mother. You know, I think that there's this very common misconception about women that, you know, we're supposed to just have that inside of us, and we're just all born with it. And, you know, it's, you know, we're all just sort of waiting to start, you know, having babies. And the more modern idea that is, is, really interesting to explore is that people make these different choices in their lives. And, uh, I think that's a really, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's not really talked about that much. Um, the idea that just because you have a child doesn't necessarily mean that you immediately fall into being the perfect mother. Uh, and so I found that really interesting and I found that I love the idea that she has to find her own form of being a parent Mm -hmm. to this child that is different from Nicole's character and is different from, um, you know, Pike, the father, uh, the adoptive father. Mm-hmm. And she has to find her own path. What can she offer this child as a parent, as a mother, that is that is different and unique to their relationship? And I think it's a very modern thing to address. There's the scene in particular, I believe, in the second episode where you encounter the daughter, your daughter for the first time is one of I think the most impressive acting performances that I've seen from you in a career that is, you know, full of incredible performances. There's like a there's a, a full internal symphony playing across your face, um, 
of a wide range Aww. of emotions, Aww. even when you're silent and just just reacting, which I think is really the key to, to acting. Um, I, I'm I'm curious about how if, if you'll allow the ridiculous metaphor of an internal symphony. Um, which up to you. <laughs> I, I love it. Okay. So what I wanted <laughs> no, to ask, I'm, I'm embracing it. What I wanted to ask was that was a symphony. There are notes of that symphony that you have played before in an interesting way. Um, it, not just with Robin, but Peggy on Mad Men and June on Handmaid's Tale have, have also have unique relationships to motherhood. Peggy also gave up a child for adoption and wrestled with that in the workplace. June obviously had the child taken from her. In all of these roles, you've had to carry that symphony inside of your performance. Um, I have no question. I'm just really curious about the process for you on that particular issue. Yeah. I mean, it points to how I feel and I've always sort of approached every character um, regardless of uh, time period and age and cultural upbringing and all of that, you know, uh, you've got somebody in the 60s, you've got who's, who's quite a bit younger, you've got someone like June who's, um, you know, very much a modern woman, and then you have an Australian detective who has a very unique story herself in how she came to birth this child. But there, to me, it points to this idea of we're, we're all kind of the same going through the same things, though. Uh, and one of the things I always wanted to bring to Peggy was this idea that she's, uh, I, I didn't really care that she was a woman in the 60s so much. I felt like there were so many parallels between her story and what 20-something women were going through um, at that time. And, you know, so I feel the same way about, you know, about any of the characters I play. I really try to bring them into now and bring them into the modern world and sort of show the connective tissue between all uh, all of us, and, and especially as women and as mothers. Um, it is it is a topic that for some reason I keep encountering. Uh, <laughs> I keep sort of having kids and giving them away or losing them. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a common theme. Um, but I think there's just a very interesting, complicated story there, and I'm 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 attracted to those those complex stories. And I, and I think that, you know, as women, um, the idea of, of motherhood in that relationship is, is very prevalent, whether or not you are a mother. And uh, so for me, it just keeps kind of popping up. Absolutely. And, 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 and to your point about um, playing the truth of a woman in any era, I, the, the thing about the show that I find so exhilarating in the first series and in this one I mean, this is a police show, and, and if you, you will enjoy it on that level if that's what you're interested in watching. But this, to me, this is a show that cares more about the interior and exterior life of women than almost any other I can remember. There's a attention to, to, to gaze in every interaction. I mean, t- traditionally the male gaze, I guess you would call it. But also casual moments have an attention to female experience that is just really bracing as a viewer of more mainstream or I guess just most other entertainments and specifically this might be even a throwaway moment but I don't believe Jane Campion does throwaway moments in the first episode of the series when, when, when your character is meeting the boss her boss at, at a restaurant where he is where he doesn't get to finish his plate of nachos um she pushes through this, this clutch of tall blonde women in heels holding drinks to get to him and then pushes through them again. And the camera is aware of that and of how oh. Robin feels in that group and in every group that she enters in. And it it's really keeps you on your toes as a viewer and engages you in a way that I think other shows do not. Uh, absolutely. And you're, and you're absolutely right about that not being a throwaway moment. That was completely designed by Jane and very specifically, I remember she was sort of getting the tallest and blondest ones mm-hmm. that she could. 
for me to push for me to push through and um that kind of a thing was I'm glad that you picked up on that because that's a very subtle Jane Campion move uh that you don't get uh in a lot of in a lot of projects. But it really helped to set up, yeah, what is that dynamic? How does she feel uh amongst these very classically kind of Australian women, you know, they're tall and blonde and beautiful and uh, it comes from Jane's own experience as a woman and mm-hmm. as an Australian woman, um, you know, which is really, she puts so much of herself into these characters and into her projects. So that was very personal. That was actually a very personal moment for her. Uh, and the, yeah, the, I feel like often, like you said, there's just, there's a, there's not a lot of exploration of female relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's changing and there's more and more in projects, but there's been a lot of conversation recently about how, you know, in, in, in some projects, it's women are re- only reacting to men mm-hmm. and it's their lives revolve around a man and the male gaze. And Jane does this kind of fantastic thing in this, in this series where she completely ignores that. And it's all about the women and it's all about their relationships to each other. And the men are just sort of almost, uh, they're well. They're they're put into the positions that women are usually put into, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of being catalysts for the female characters and for reacting off of the female characters as opposed to the other way around. Uh, and it's, it's something that comes so naturally to Jane that I, you know, she just wouldn't have it any other way. And, and I'm curious about working with her. Um, if there's a shorthand that develops because of that, because you have you have the um, you've had the unique experience of working on long projects, television projects with um, male creators and writers, directors who I believe would call themselves feminists as well. Matt Weiner on Sopranos, Bruce Miller on Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I'm not asking you to pick favorites or play one against the other, but I am curious about the about working with with Jane at the top of the um, of the production. Um, and having a woman making those decisions from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, I've been really lucky, like you said, about the sort of team, uh, the male bosses that I've had have been, you know, tried and true feminists and have a very good understanding of the of you know women and, and have written really great female characters. Um, I do think there's something about, obviously, about a female leader. Um, female director or writer that is different. You're going to get that moment that we talked about where she pushes through the group of mm-hmm. tall blondes that I don't know if you would get with a man, um, you know, and, and maybe you would, but I don't know. And you're going to get the sort of perspective that is unique to being a woman, just as there is perspective that is unique to being a man. Um, but I think if you're telling this really a complex female story about motherhood, it's obviously you're going to get things from the the female showrunner, if you will, that are going to be really helpful and unique. And it's the same thing, you know, on The Handmaid's Tale, when we hire female directors, we're mm-hmm. looking for that perspective. We're looking for what you can bring to it that is that is different, just like we would be looking for what a man could bring to something that is different. I, I also think it's, it's a, an opportunity to give um, performers different opportunities. And specifically, I'm thinking of Gwendolyn Christie, who is so magnificent on Game of Thrones, which is why many people know of her. And that's a role that calls attention to her physicality, 
this show, um, On Top of the Lake, it also calls attention to her physicality, but the part that she plays allows her to be goofy and um, romantic and silly uh, and funny, which, you know, I didn't doubt she was, but I didn't get to see it in this way before. Um, it, it's a treat. Yeah, I mean, right? It's such a treat. And if you get to know Gwen, you uh, you, you realize so quickly how much of that is in her. I mean, she's an incredibly funny, sharp, brilliant woman. And she has a sense of humor that is absolutely devastating um, that comes from her intelligence. And, you know, you can see that she brings that into other roles, like on mm-hmm. Game of Thrones. You can see that intelligence. But to get to get the chance, I think, for her and for all of us as an audience to see so much more of her, uh, for me, was absolutely just thrilling. I mean, I was just in an awesome time kind of getting to watch this person work in a way that I hadn't seen. And she has, I think that is something that these characters in Top of the Lake and that Jane kind of brings as a, as a female director that is really interesting where she breaks down these preconceived notions of what a strong woman is. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't actually, a strong woman doesn't actually mean that you know how to use a sword or that you're dressed in armor. It can, and you can do that. But a strong woman is also has many other qualities that are interesting. And, you know, Gwen brought this, she has an innate strength that we can't get away from. But she brought this vulnerability, this sense of just, this sense of this glass cracking, you know, Mm -hmm. that she was just this fragility that was just sort of remarkable. And I loved the juxtaposition of this taller woman who is so fragile with this smaller woman, me, this shorty, who <laughs> is quite strong, you know, and the, how the outside of them does not reflect what's on the inside, I think is really interesting. And speaking of strong, um, Nicole Kidman is on one in this. She is just incredible to watch. There is a ferocity to her performance that is thrilling. Um, and I, I, I just have to ask, yeah. I mean, you've, you've obviously worked with tremendous actors um, throughout your career. In the, in the scenes between, the scenes that you share are so uh, heightened, so alive. I, I wonder if you have that same uh, excitement that I've heard, you know, the champion tennis players talk about how, like, like when you get to play the, the best, it brings out the best in you, like McEnroe when he played Borg or Federer when he played Nadal. There's something about that that I thought of when I watched you share these scenes together. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, it felt it was very thrilling. Uh, you know, I kind of it, we came on equal footing because we've both worked with Jane before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had this history with my character and experience with my character that uh, that she didn't have. She was exploring a new character, but she had all of her experience as a giant movie star to back her up. Um, so we sort of it was, we did kind of come at it with this sense of, uh, Ooh, this is going to be fun. Like this is, this is something new. And then given the, the story, how we're sort of pitted against each other, every time they encounter one another, it's, uh, fraught with this tension and it's fraught with this battle. You know, I think one of the episodes is called the battle of the mothers Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, you know, it's, um, that's really exciting and it lends itself to this underlying tension in a scene. You almost don't have to, you don't have to do anything. It's just, it's just there. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it does a lot for you, the context of the, of the scene. I also loved what we discovered really quickly, which was that 
it's you, you sort of suppose that her character is going to have the upper hand, mm-hmm. given her position of the adopt being the adoptive mother of of Mary, and you very quickly realize that personality wise, Robin does because mm-hmm. she has a security and she has a strength that Julia doesn't have. Um, and it was really interesting to see how Robin's sort of quiet strength and her ability to actually just be very still physically, the juxtaposition of that with Julia's more frenetic yeah. ferocity, as you as you called it, you know, it was really fun to play with. I mean, Nicole Kidman's performance, there's such a neediness to her performance while still being ferocious and strong that is so layered and so palpable. It's really exciting to watch. Um, I... I, I, yeah, I, exactly. I don't want to take too much of your time. I, I did want to. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a little bit about *Handmaid's Tale*. Because, by the way, congratulations on two incredible performances and successes in in one year. Um, are you already filming season two? Oh, of is course. That, is, Thank you. Is that coming up? Yeah, we start filming September nineteenth. So we're uh, deep into prep right now. There's like a a countdown of prep days happening that is supplying sufficient amount of stress. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's exciting. We're all really happy to go. You know, obviously, we're thrilled to go back. We have such a great team, and and you know, it's just you just when you make a show like this, you really hope that you just get to make more, and that's the very bottom line of what you want. And so, the fact that we get to go back is, I mean, it's just you know, we're very lucky. <laughs> you know, I I, I talked to a, a film actress recently, and she said that she struggled with um, taking a TV offer because she couldn't imagine a character that she'd want to spend more than two hours inside of. Um, you've obviously played remarkable women on on the big screen, but you now have created three um, just indelible characters on television, and you know, been able to slip back into their skin, into their head. What is it about, I mean, because we're talking about Handmaid's Tale, maybe we should talk specifically about June, but I'm curious about what is it that distinguishes for you a, a, a character that is a, a a one and done and one that could you could live with for a while? Um, I would say there's nothing really about the character that, that it distinguishes that. Um, for me, I, I, I don't really draw the lines. I just kind of go for what's the best material. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even with several projects that I'm producing, that are in the stage of we're not even decided if they're a film or a miniseries. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't care less. I, it's just a, it's just about what's going to tell the story the best. And some stories lend themselves to maybe six hours or ten hours or thirteen, and and some you can get done in a couple hours. You know, um, it's actually there's there's sort of uh, strengths and difficulties to both. Um, but for me, I never really make a distinction. I'm just sort of attracted to what the character is. I do think with something like June, with Hammy's Tale, I, I love the opportunity to get more time to explore the character. I mean, for me, it's much easier if I've got six hours than, rather than two. <laughs> you know, it's much easier if I've got all this time to tell backstory and to to bring this character along. I don't like to do anything too quickly. You know, I like to be subtle. And so for me, it's, uh, I, that's why I think I keep kind of gravitating towards television is, and what I loved about Mad Men was this opportunity to live with a character for so many years and, and see them grow and see them change. And to me, that's just, I remember telling people back in the day, a few years ago, when television, it was a new concept that, you know, television was a good thing to do. 
was a relatively new concept. And I remember talking to actors and being like, hey, guys, it's great. You get all this time to explore the character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sort of like trying to convert people to this idea of like, it's awesome. <laughs> I, 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 and I think it, I don't know if it was, I don't think it was me that did it, but something sunk in. <laughs> no, you are, you are responsible for flat whites and peak TV. So we thank you for both. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. I'm, I'm, I don't know which I'm more proud of, frankly. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine one of the, one of the challenges, I, I'm sure there are many, but one of the challenges of playing June over time is you know, the challenge of playing the life of someone versus the sort of hopelessness and death that surrounds them. You know, to, to be fully alive as a, non, as a person who has not given up in a world that is so viscerally bleak for both the characters and, you know, at times for the audience. Is that, is that safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's the thing that I think um, I love the most and that attracts me the most. I, I admire June. I, you know, I, I look kind of, I look up to her. I think she's um, kind of this amazing heroine. I hope that if in similar circumstances, I, I would be as strong as she is. Um, but that was one of the initial things that attracted to me about the part was this idea of a woman who, despite every reason to give in, every reason to go either way, either you give up or you mm-hmm. go crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she doesn't. And she just will not give up. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever and just was so inspiring. And um, modulating that as we go through uh, the series and modulating that as we go through the seasons, that's what that's the challenge of finding the moments when she has strength and finding the moments when she almost loses it and how uh you know realistic that would be uh, how much can one person take and i think that's something we're exploring in season 2 how much can how much can a human being actually withstand before they break and um obviously i won't reveal anything but <laughs> but there is a breaking point for everybody you know can you pick yourself up after that is the follow-up question. One last question for me about um, Handmaid's Tale. That one of the things that fascinated me about the series uh, was the way that it in some ways felt like a time capsule because this was a project that had been uh, championed, greenlit, written, and I believe mostly filmed in what to me and I think many listeners feels like a different world. It was in um, uh, Obama's America. We were expecting – many people were expecting a, a President Hillary Clinton uh, and then the show arrived in a very different time and was received as such. You know, there was a lot of writing about um, either parallels or fears or the sort of visceral reaction it brought out in a lot of people living in this this new era. Um, this new season is being written and conceived and filmed in this new era. Now, I I would never think that um, you know the show will will become overtly political in a way that is relevant to our world any more than it already was. This is a novel that was written a number of decades ago, but I am curious how that is how that may have affected the production. Um, your colleagues on all sides of the camera here, and even in your own performance. Yeah, we um, the election happened when we were filming episodes four and five, so about half, literally halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we. We admittedly all sort of thought that we were going to have a female president and still felt that the show had this relevance, the same relevance that the book had, you know, uh, in 1985 when it was written. Because we're not just talking about our country. You know, there are a lot of other countries right now that are, you know, run by a theocracy and are dealing with the issues in Gilead um, in one form or another. And so we, I think after the election, 
it just all got very close to home. And the ideas and, and concepts and things that we were exploring that were very much based in reality um, had either happened in history or were happening currently, all of a sudden were happening closer to us. And so it just it just was a sort of um, deepening of our convictions, I suppose. It was a it was a deepening of our ideas. The ideas didn't change and they haven't changed, but in going into season two, but there is a sense of them being uh, more personal, more grounded, um, closer to home of things being uh, even more sensitive than they, than they might've been before. Um, So it doesn't really change anything as far as story goes. Honestly, (laughs) Unfortunately, we sort of just keep doing things and, and then they happen or things happen and then we've already written them. Mm-hmm. There's just this, this parallel that's happening is, is very sort of unconstructed, uh, which is unfortunate, but the truth. Um, you know, we're constantly reading things in scripts and, and then sending, some, sending it out, out an article to each other going, well, this is weird because this is, this is now happening here. You know, so it's... It's not designed. Unfortunately, it's been very circumstantial. It, it, it's helped made the show, uh, you know, it's not always an easy watch, and it never was going to be, but it's made it, it, it definitely has changed, I think, a lot of audience reaction to it and the viscerality of it. I was just going to say, I mean, I've had many interesting conversations with Margaret Atwood um, about the show and about the book and about history, and she's one of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet, and, you know, which she says, history repeats itself. There's not really a lot of roadmap. you got to look at the past and what, what has happened. And, um, you know, what she wrote in that book had happened before um, and was happening at the time. And, and so it's, it's kind of something that we regrettably uh, find a lot of truth in. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it's not always a happy thought, but it's actually a nice bit of um, uh, a nice, in a way, nice callback to what you were saying earlier about playing every character as a with present concerns, you know, alive in the present, because in a way, everyone, every character is, history is always alive with, with every person that you've played and with the audience. Exactly. I, 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 you've been so generous with your time. I, I know you probably have to film two more movies that will win the Palm d'Or before you film season two of Handmaid's Tale. Uh, a movie, by the way, we didn't even get a chance to talk about, <laughs> but I, I have to um, say, I, in a couple of weeks, right before you start filming, will be the Emmys out here. You've been nominated before. I personally feel like you are going to win this year. I certainly hope that you do. Is there anything that you can tell our listeners? Like, is there a way to, when they put your face up on the screen and they do the split screen of everyone, what face you will make uh, regardless of the outcome uh, and, and what is actually going on inside of your mind during those moments, this, especially after having gone through it a few times? <laughs> um, yeah, it's such a bizarre moment because it's, uh, it's, it can be... You can be very relaxed about the whole thing until that moment, and then you almost have a weird sort of -of out-of-body experience where time suspends itself uh, for a second, and you uh, it's a very odd, sort of slightly terrifying (laughs) moment, and uh, and then it's over very quickly. You know, it's like ripping off a Band-Aid, and for me, you know, seven times uh, before, it's, it's... it's almost been, it's a kind of a relief whatever happens. You know, you're just kind of happy that the moment is over. <laughs> yeah, but this time... <laughs> and you can, you know... There's, there's always the risk that you're going to be asked to do something that we don't ask of anyone. We don't even ask heart surgeons to do this, to go from that out-of-body moment to saying, okay, now you have to walk down this pathway and stand in front of millions of people and give a thoughtful speech. No, we don't ask that of any other profession other than actors. <laughs> it's so 
true. I remember the only time I've, I've won a, only, I think I won two awards, and one of them was the Golden Globe, and I was just shocked out of my mind that they called my name because they never call my name. And I, I always thought that I would remain relatively composed and be able to give a thoughtful speech. I have no idea what I said to this day. I... I I completely blacked out. I was shaking. I remember just thinking, I was wearing a dress that was short in the front, and there were all these famous movie stars, the tables really close to the stage, and I just remember thinking, oh my God, these people can see my legs shaking. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> I think that you can't possibly like prepare yourself for that moment, so, uh, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel bad wishing you more moments of... of- public leg shaking but i i really think this is a, a this is your year and you certainly deserve it i thank you not just for taking the time to talk to me again but thank you for these performances which are extraordinary as always uh well that is very very kind to you i know you're um you're, you're a very intelligent person so i very much appreciate your feedback thank you and thank you also for the coffee because i i think flat jokes aside it's an excellent order Okay, I still don't really understand what it is. <laughs> don't, 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 don't talk about ripping off the band-aid. <laughs> don't rip off that band-aid. Everyone was, everyone was sold. I know. Is it a latte? Is it a cappuccino? I don't, I, I don't understand. I think, it's, I, think it, I think it's a classy latte. I think it's a classy latte. Exactly. Exactly. It just sounds cool. Well, best of luck with season two. Best of luck at the Emmys. And I hope I'll get a chance to talk to you again um, when it's time again next year. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lizzie. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Delta Airlines. I want to thank them again for their stewardship. Delta offers every type of entertainment for every passenger free with Delta Studio. Delta Studio grants you access to over 1,000 hours of entertainment, all from your seat back or your own device, 100% free. There's nothing like getting caught up on the world of movies, TV, entertainment from the back of your seat or the seat in front of you. Uh, it's just like a great place to just like zone out. Watch you know what I like to do? Remember how, how I watch San Andreas? Mm-hmm. I watch it by watching everyone else on the plane watch it. That's right. I can't believe you watched that on a, mo- on a plane. I, I didn't. Everyone else was watching it. I was traumatized. You didn't have to watch it because you could have chosen from podcasts like this one, games, television, and up to 300 movies, from comedies, dramas, to family and thriller. Delta Studios has tons of new releases and all of your old favorites. You even get access to HBO Showtime and 18 channels of live satellite television on select flights or listen to your favorite artists with the Delta Studios expansive music library. Delta has also partnered with the likes of HGTV, Refinery29, Food Network, Hulu Originals, WMYC Studios, Curious World Headspace, and Disney XD to offer you even more great content. And it's all streamable from your laptop, iPhone, iPad, or Android tablet device via the GoGo Entertainment app. Buckle up and relax. Delve into another world as you soar above your own with the endless entertainment from Delta Studio. Your journey is sure to fly by. Thanks again to Mack Weldon for sponsoring the watch today with a smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping experience. Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard too. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, and they're shipped right to your door. If you don't like your first pair, don't sweat it. Not that you would be sweating because of those that silver underwear. You keep it, they'll still refund you, no questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first purchase by using the promo code WATCH.